0: You're listening to TIP. A lot of people write off technical analysts, so they're just drawing squiggles on charts. But the the chart is the single encapsulates in one measure what the market thinks about the share. And if you're trying to make money out of the difference between perception and reality, which is what effectively what an investment analyst does, then you need to not only understand the reality which analysts tend to be reasonably good at. But you also need to understand the perception. And you need to understand why the perception is wrong and what might change it. If you don't understand that, then you'll never make any money. And how do you understand the perception? Well, it's quite difficult, isn't it? I mean, how would you know what's in the price? And the best place to start is the share price.
1: In this episode, I chat with Stephen Clapham about the use of laterals to leverage your circle of competence and find great ideas, simple ways to test your investing hypothesis, methods to reduce your exposure to investing frauds, the importance of investing in a business with properly incentivized management, why you should pay close attention to the value of a business's debt, the role that stock charts can play in a fundamental investor's toolbox, the power of simplicity in valuation, and a whole lot more. I first found out about Stephen Clapham when I saw his book, The Smart Money Method, referenced by a former guest, Tobias Carlisle. When Tobias says something is worth reading, I'm all ears. So I checked out the book and author and ordered it immediately. I was impressed with how well the book was laid out and some of the very interesting insights into how professional investors analyze stocks. There were so many takeaways I had from the book, but the overarching lesson was that I probably needed to do even more work into the individual line items of any business that I was interested in. Stephen is very good at identifying potential frauds with his focus on forensic accounting. This has helped him avoid making poor investments while helping to spread the word about how others can avoid the same mistakes. If you enjoy learning about the process of how to analyze stocks like a pro, you'll learn a lot from this show. So without further delay, let's jump right into this week's episode with Stephen Clapham. You're listening to Millennial
0: Investing by the Investors Podcast Network. Since 2014, we interviewed successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Now for your host, Kyle Grieve.
1: Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Grieve, and today I bring Stephen Clapham onto the show. Stephen, welcome to the podcast.
0: Whoa, thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to it.
1: I recently finished your book, The Smart Money Method, and I enjoyed learning about the subtle nuances and specific degrees of depth that you'd go into in a business that you discuss in your book. I really enjoyed learning about laterals, which you say is how all of your best in- in investment ideas were created. Laterals are, quote, taking a stock idea or theme and apply it to a different stock industry or geography. Why do you think this method was so powerful for unveiling great ideas for you?
0: Honestly, I, I don't know why it was so powerful. I just, you know, you often don't know why something works. You just sort of gravitate to the things that work. And I, can't, I I mean, I can't really explain it other than, well, if you've seen something work before, it's got a high probability of working again. And I, I can't remember. the. It's, it's so long since I wrote the book. I, and, you know, I haven't read it. But I think the one that I used in the book was the the discounters, the supermarket discounters setting up in the UK, Aldi and Lidl, and they rolled out a huge increase in the number of stores. And obviously, that put significant pressure on the incumbents. it was quite a cozy oligopoly up until that point. And then, so when they moved to Australia, you could predict with a high degree of confidence what would happen, because these these German discounters they're very effective. And I believe that you know, they've, they've started to come into the East Coast now. And you've seen the playbook before. So I, I guess the reason why it's effective is it's harder to predict something that you've not seen before than something you have seen before. So it, 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 that, I guess that's the simple reason. But I wanted to ask you, why is my book not on your shelf? How do I get, my, how do I get that product placement?
1: Oh, it definitely is on my shelf somewhere. Where is it? Oh, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> no, it but
0: is. It, I'm going to get it in that sort of top right corner.
1: <laughs> it's definitely up there. I promise you. So one thing you really mentioned, that I, one thing that you just mentioned now that I liked and that I quoted was for, about geographies and moving from one geography to another geography. So how do you help with the analytical process of of understanding when you think a product market fit is right for one geography and right for another geography, even if, it, let's say, it's in a different, a whole different continent and has a different culture and stuff like that.
0: Well, I wouldn't necessarily be making that assumption. I mean, I, you know, if it's worked somewhere else, and you obviously you're hopeful, that isn't how I would necessarily classify um, how I'm looking at it. It wouldn't be the transfer of a product necessarily. It would be more like that theme, the, the discounting theme that was disruptor in one geography, then moves to another geography. And that would be more, you know, you, you could predict with a, a degree of confidence what the impact would be. I'd be less sure that Tesco opening up in California... I generally wouldn't think, oh, Tesco's successful in the UK, therefore be successful in America, because uh, I can't name a UK retailer that's gone to America and and made any money. And sure enough, you know, Tesco burned hundreds of millions trying to to set up in in the US because they thought they were the best food retailer in the world. Turned out that they were were very good, but they couldn't compete in, in the US, which is you know the most efficient most competitive market for almost any product. So I'm not confident about the application of a product to a very different geography, unless it's something very simple. Uh, But, you know, when you go to China or you go to America, there are very, very different markets, and you can't place a great deal of of reliance on that. And also, Carl, what you've always got to think about is what's in the price. You know, management have said, oh, we think we're going to go, you know, we're going to this new market and we're going to do really, really well. And there's some anticipation of success. And um, you've got to be very careful with that.
1: So another simple way that you outlined for finding great ideas was to follow the market. And by this, I mean looking at the market to see what is currently out of favor. The market often overreacts to things like earnings misses, negative guidance, litigation, decreased growth rates, departure of key executives, and increased leverage. But these events can also be very short-term in nature and offer incredible buying opportunities to those who have some patience. How do you use this strategy on a business with limited knowledge of where the price value gap may close faster than you can finish your research?
0: If you're trying to deploy a very large chunk of capital, you're, you know, Partner head of research at two multi billion dollar hedge funds. And you don't have that many positions. So when you're deploying capital, you're deploying it usually in in quite significant size, particularly on the long side. And in order to do that, you need to be confident that where you're going to deploy the capital, where it's going to work. And you can only generate that confidence by doing a lot of work. So you've got to spend a lot of time.
2: It, it, It
0: just, people in the stock market, they're always looking for quick wins. And Quick wins are, I'm not saying there isn't such a thing as a quick win. I have made quick wins, but they've been very, very rare. And usually it's been a long and painful grind to to find an idea. So you don't have any guarantee that where you're doing a lot of work, that the stock price won't move in the meantime. But ironically and paradoxically, in spite of the fact that it would take me quite a long time, we were usually too early. Because if you're thinking about, if you and I are buying a stock, we can you know, wait for it to bottom, bounce a bit, and then buy it once the, you know, once the base is set in. If you're, wanted, if you're a large hedge fund, you've got to buy it on the way down. And you don't know where the bottom is. And usually, the bottom was way lower than when we, what we thought. So if anything, it was quite the reverse. Rather than being late, we were being early. But you might not buy on the first profits warning, but you might not wait for the third one. You know, if you thought that there was a good longer term opportunity. I mean, typically, I wouldn't gone and bought a stock that had had a profits warning because the risk of turning around, usually stocks that have profits warnings have a second, have a third. And I would only ever sort of start to get confidence <laughs> once I'd seen you know, that there was some evidence that the, thing, that the thing was going to turn around. So that wouldn't be my sort of thing. I also, changes of management. People, and look, there's all sorts of ways to invest successfully. And I'm not, I can only tell you what works for me. And I, I think this is an extraordinarily personal endeavor. I don't think people place enough emphasis on it. I, I mean, funny, I had a cup of coffee with Anthony Bolton last week. Anthony Bolton, one of the world's best investors. And, you know, he said that, what I hadn't put in my book, which he, he thought was, uh, was missing, is that you need to know yourself. And it's actually very true. I think knowing, understanding what you're good at and what you're not good at is actually very important. So I start off the book by saying my speciality was forecasting company profitability. And that's what I, I focused on. And that company profitability might be about to go down because Audi and Little or about to enter the Australian market, or it might be about to go up because there was some pricing power hidden that the stock market hadn't perceived, or there was demand, you know, in a different sector that was going to generate demand for this sector. But I wouldn't really get involved in sort of very obvious things because I think you know if it's very obvious, then there's usually a good reason behind it. I mean, finally, I'm writing my Substack for Nick Sunday about an idea that was presented at the own ideas competition. And it was one of these sort of discount to, the, to some of the parts, a company with a lot of stakes in other companies. I said, really, generally, I don't like these ideas because anybody can add up. How could you have an edge with that? Although this particular one is so compelling, it's such a large discount that it's hard to see. You know, you've got such a margin of safety, but it's very, very unusual to get that. And things that are obvious, usually don't work.
1: So I know you like to draw wisdom from contrary views when testing your thesis for an idea. You talk about how these are much harder to come across, like a bear report. So for investors investing in more obscure or less followed businesses, what are the best ways to try and poke holes in your thesis when no bearish report exists?
0: Well, go down the pub with your mates. Tell them your idea and watch them laugh at you and rip rip it apart. That's one way of doing it. I mean, I think it's very difficult to be completely solitary as an investor and i think being able to bounce ideas around i find to be quite helpful and so you know at the hedge funds we would discuss you know it wouldn't it wouldn't be you know you would come up with an idea and just put it in the in the portfolio it would be there would be quite a rigorous debate and i think that's a very very healthy thing because the discussion forces you to examine the strength of your thesis and figure out, are there any holes in it? I was usually deploying a lot of capital. So by definition, it was in a large cap stock. And by definition, it would have a number of people looking at it. And there might have been, you know, 25 buys, but there would be one guy that had been a seller in the past, or there would always be somebody that was less enthusiastic. And so I would really spend my time, if I was looking at a long, I'd really spend my time trying to poke holes in my own argument. If you're looking at a small cap, it's clearly more difficult. And you the only thing I think you can do really is to say, are there any sales of comparable companies? Maybe not in the same sector, but something with similar characteristics, and just to argue with your friends. I mean, I, I was being slightly facetious, to go down the pub. But Actually, the debate down in the pub is, can be quite helpful. And I was at an investment conference a couple of weeks ago. And the most interesting part of the investment conference is usually the chat in the bar.
1: I know you've done a lot of work on a case study, a patisserie, Valerie, a chain of cake-focused cafes. You had a really good point about the fact that it wasn't a particularly difficult fraud to identify. Your simple measure was to look at it. And you could instantly see that its margins were higher than that of Starbucks, for instance. So why does that matter? Because coffee is a high margin business, and there's simply no way that cakes that are consumed in store can compete with the margins that a business like Starbucks, who people can just take their drinks and go, would have. So one part of this case study I found particularly scary was the fact that the CEO, Luke Johnson, was unaware of the fraud and was never prosecuted. He also owned 37% of the business and had his equity wiped out. Investors looking for quality businesses might have been attracted to a business like this that had appeared to have some sort of competitive advantage. On top of looking at financial statements and comparisons to other businesses, what are the best ways for investors to limit the risk of fraud?
0: Well, I mean, the the Luke Johnson case is quite an interesting one. I mean, Luke actually lived around the corner from me. And um, at the time, our children were at the same school. And I was quite puzzled. Because I thought, you know, he's a very smart guy. How has he not spotted this? And the, the day, the week, it, I think it went bust on the Tuesday. And then the Friday morning, I was dropping my younger son off at school. And who should I bump into? Very early on, obviously not wanting to see anybody, was Luke Johnson. And he couldn't speak. It's not every week that you lose 150 million quid at the time. And that would have been 200 and something million dollars. That's not a good week, right? Even if you're very rich. And he wasn't. He was rich, but that must have been one of his biggest holdings. You know, it was clear that he hadn't been aware. And I think he was doing an awful lot of things. And he he was executive chairman, but there was a CEO who was running the business. And I think, you know, he was there in the board meetings and he was told, oh, it's all going fantastically well. And he probably never visited the stores. And if he'd visited the stores, he would have seen that. There was a Patisserie Valerie next door to the Café Nero, another coffee chain, very close to one of the offices I worked at. We always used to buy our coffee in Café Nero. We used to do a coffee run every day. And um, we never went to Patisserie Valerie. The Café Nero was always full. The Patisserie Valerie was always empty. Now, it could have been just that street, you know, in central London. But the Café Nero margins started off, at two thirds of Petitierie Valerie, and fell in half. Whereas Petitierie Valerie's margins went up. <laughs> that seems a bit bizarre. But the, I think this tool, I really recommend to all my students. You know, I, I train professional investors in forensic accounting. I have an online school, which allows you to learn about investing and about reading financial statements. And I say, look, The one really powerful tool is look at the margins versus the peers and understand why your company's margins are where they are relative to their peer group. And I really can't understand how could making cakes where it's very labor intensive, there's a lot of material cost, there's a lot of wastage because they're full of cream and they go off. Coffee is the highest margin product you can get. Just about. I mean, it's got a seventy-five percent gross margin if you include the cost of the electricity. Uh, I mean, it, it is a really well. The beans cost tuppence, and the cappuccino costs three dollars fifty. It's just a, a a very very profitable product. And if you're making a higher profit than selling coffee, then you're doing really really well. And there must be some trick to it. And If you can't understand why the margins are where they are, then you probably shouldn't buy the stock.
1: So looking at stock charts is not something that I find particularly interesting myself, but you gave a great quote by Stanley Druckenmiller on how it can be used to help improve abilities as an investor. He wrote up an investment paper to his research director who, after reading it, said, quote, this is useless. What makes the stock go up and down? That comment acted as a spur. Thereafter, I focused my analysis on seeking to identify the factors that were strongly correlated to a stock price's movement as opposed to looking at all the fundamentals. Frankly, even today, many analysts still don't know what makes their particular stock goes up and down, unquote. I agree with you that I'm not sure it's necessary to completely ignore the fundamentals just to identify what makes a stock go up and down, but I am interested in whether you think this is a worthwhile exercise to add to a fundamentals-based investment process.
0: Absolutely. I think A lot of people write off technical analysts, so they're just drawing squiggles on charts. But the the chart is the single, encapsulates in one measure what the market thinks about the share. And if you're trying to make money out of the difference between perception and reality, which is what, effectively, what an investment analyst does, then you need to not only understand the reality, which analysts tend to be reasonably good at. But you also need to understand the perception. And you need to understand why the perception is wrong and what might change it. If you don't understand that, then you'll never make any money. And how do you understand the perception? Well, it's quite difficult, isn't it? I mean, how would you know what's in the price? And the best place to start is the share price. And if the share price has been going down and down and down and down and down and down, then there is quite a good chance that it will continue to go down and down and down and down. And you've got to understand what is going to make it go up. I mean, a lot of people focus their energies on valuation and say, "Well, if I buy if I, if it's cheap enough, I'll buy it cheaply enough, then I'll be I'll be safe." And you know what will happen? They'll lose money and they'll lose money for a period, and then they'll get bored. They'll write off that loss and go and buy something else. The fundamentals and the valuation are obviously terribly, terribly important. But if you don't overlay the real-world interpretation, understand why the stock market views that business in the way it does, you've only got half the story, and it just makes it more difficult to make money. I'm not saying you can't make money by buying a stock that's very, very cheap, obviously. If you buy stocks that are very, very cheap, the chances are that they will that they'll go up. But they might get quite a lot cheaper. And understanding timing is important. The, the problem, Carl, is that you know we don't get everything right. So eliminating obvious, simple mistakes is quite a good strategy, in my view. And you know, knowing when to buy something is actually quite important. And so I view Charts. I'm not a great believer in, you know, oh, it's broken out and Fibonacci. And I mean, I don't even look at a candlestick. All that stuff, I think, is it's not that I don't believe it. It's just that I want to just get the basics right. I don't want to get to encompass in all the detail about the charts. But what I do want to understand is. Is the market becoming more favorable or less favorable towards this company, and why? And once I've understood that, you know, I can say, "Oh well, it is cheap, and the the market's warming to this company. If it's cheap and the market doesn't like it and shows no sign of liking it, I might be able to find something else that is equally cheap and the market is showing some signs of interest in. And that's where I'll I'll go. All other things being equal, obviously." When you're running a professional portfolio, one of the other things you're looking for are are complementary stocks so that they reduce your overall portfolio risk. So you might buy the one that's still, you know, that's unloved and still hated and shows no sign of interest because it also gives you something else in the portfolio. There's all sorts of things that you might be, be thinking about. But ignoring the charts, I think, is why why would you ignore the most useful piece of information? And it's funny that we're having this conversation because I was in the offices of Hedge Fund in London yesterday, and I was pitching my forensic accounting training course to them. They said they were interested in it. So I went in to chat to them. And one of the guys said this to me, he said, I don't understand why people are so anti-charts. Because, you know, what you say is that it tells you the psychology of the stock market. And why wouldn't you want to know that?
1: Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. this is a paid advertisement. All right, back to the show. So in the smart money method, you wrote, quote, return on capital incentives are generally recognized by investors to be more effective than EPS targets. And this is borne out by academic as well as sell side research. I was wondering if you could elaborate more on any research you've come across on this, as well as what you've observed from any sell side research that you've looked at.
0: Oh, it's a long time since I looked at this stuff. I mean, Goldman's did a, a piece and I think mean, they've done some, some follow-ups saying, look, the best incentives you can have are re- returning on capital incentives. And it's just obvious. If you incentivize people on EPS, they'll go and do stupid acquisitions. They'll gear the company up. They'll cheat on their accounts. Look, I mean, earnings per share is quite important. The stock market pays very close attention to it. So I don't mean that you should ignore it. And I don't mean that, People shouldn't have, have it as some part of their incentives. But return in capital is a much more important criterion. You don't want people to sell off growth parts of the business in order to improve the return in capital. You know, you've got to have a, to have a, a mix of incentives. But there, there's all sorts of research, and, and there's lots of academic research on this, on, on this topic, that companies where the management are incentivized on returns and other metrics tend to do better. No, you know, show me the incentives. I'll show you that, outcome. You've got Charlie's almanac behind you. And it it, it's, it is so true. And the other thing that, I, you know, I look quite carefully at incentives. And, you know, if if a company is like a resource company, an oil company or a miner, if it doesn't have a safety incentive for the CEO, I'll be very concerned about that. I'm, You know, I wouldn't say I wouldn't buy it. But I'd be much more reluctant to buy a stock who, in those sorts of industries, if the CEO isn't rewarded for ensuring his staff are safe, because it just seems to me a fundamental criterion of a good business that you would do that. I mean, I actually did some research on this. And I, was, I was quite staggered, because not every miner, the CEO is paid to not kill his staff you would imagine that would be quite a good, you know, quite a you know, simple starting point and some quite big minds. It was quite some time ago that I did it, but I was, I was staggered.
1: So another great point on management that you made was that you look for, quote, consistency, honesty, and common sense, unquote. You list a few red flags, such as continuous restructurings and frequent mentions of extraneous issues. Now to some extent extraneous issues do affect the operations of a business but at some point management needs to take responsibility for the outcome of their business. How do you determine when a management team is spending too much time making excuses for the shortcomings of their business and view it as a red flag?
0: When they mention the weather. When they mention the weather, you know, I just um, I'm gone. I'm not interested. I mean obviously weather does affect outcomes and performance and Ironic that we were talking about patisserie Valerie. I mean, in 2018, we had a very hot summer in the UK. I mean, it, it was a, the hottest summer I think since 1976. And as a consequence of that, you know, the ice cream vendors did very well, and people selling tea and cake did less well. So obviously, it does, at the extreme, it has it does have an outcome um, and an influence, and and is a fair thing to include. But I think generally. People that look for excuses rather than blaming themselves tend to be people I'm less comfortable about investing in. You know, I, I'd much rather hear the CEO say, "We missed our numbers, and I was stupid because I'd assumed that we were going to have a a mild summer, and I should have had more slack in there." And I've been a bit over over-ambitious in, in, in the projections.
1: I mean, how often
0: have you heard a company say that? Rarely. So companies that use extraneous things, the weather is a, a good example. Obviously, you can't predict the weather, but you shouldn't be assuming that the weather will be perfect either. So when you make a forecast, you should have some slack in the forecast. and that these sorts of factors won't kill you. And um, there's, all sort, there's all sorts of issues that slightly annoy me. Oh, we hadn't expected our competitor to cut his prices. Well, you know, you're in a competitive industry, then that is what your competitors are going to do. And it's not easy when your competitors are cutting your prices to grow your profits. And that can, it can sometimes be a surprise but often you you hear management make not the same excuse quarter after quarter but there'll be a different excuse there'll be a new an excuse every quarter and i don't really have time for that sort of thing i mean it, it's different if you're you know if you're a long-term investor and you you think oh, well you know three or four quarters of bad results aren't going to affect my long-term disposition towards the share i mean i completely sympathize with that and you know i quite get that but if you're doing special situations at a hedge fund, you get paid not to buy the stock that disappoints for three or four quarters in a row. You get paid to short that stock and buy, buy something good that goes up. And I just wouldn't hang around. In, in that role, I wouldn't hang around for those perennial disappointers. I mean, I have been responsible for money that's been longer term money, and then I might take a different attitude. But the excuses always make me feel just may undermine my confidence in the people. You know, obviously, things don't go according to plan all the time. But the way you the way you present that is quite important.
1: So you had a great sentence on debt that really spoke to me, quote, if debt is quoted and trading at a discount, it is often a critical indicator of failing financial health, unquote. I recently spoke with Matthew Peterson, who discussed his experience with Horsehead Holdings. And he said if he'd only looked at the discount to the debt that the business was trading at, it would have helped him stay away from the business that ended up being a major dud. What's the simplest way to add this to the investing process and what resources are best to get a better understanding of the value of a corporation's debt?
0: Well, I mean, I can't understand why anybody would buy a stock with quarter debt and not look at the value of it. Why would you do that? Especially if it's got a lot of debt. That seems bizarre because the credit markets are, are quite good at spotting financial risk. Because that's what you know, they're they're paid to look at the downside and we're paid to look at the upside. So I would always look at the value of the debt. I mean I used to just do, do it on Bloomberg, but if you don't have Bloomberg, then there are ways you can you can do it. Because you can go to a stockbroker and say you want to buy the credit and say how much you know, what's the share what's the price? And this broker will have a have a Bloomberg terminal, be able to tell you um there are quotes for these things uh, i mean there are you know i have proprietary systems you know that i i pay to get access to the to the, the price of credit and those aren't you know they aren't free i mean i've forgotten what the one that i use how much it is. It's not it, it's not a ridiculous amount you would need to be doing enough trading or investing that it would pay you to to buy that I mean, it's quite an interesting thing because I did a Substack about, you know, what does it cost to be an investor? And I invited my readers to come back to me with, you know, what they spend. I was quite shocked how little people spend. You know, people just believe, oh, well, you know, I can buy, or actually there's now some good products that are free that you can get, you know, quite a remarkable amount. But why would I I pay for $30,000 a year for Bloomberg when I can get X, Y, Z for free? And... um, And, you know, I've got a certain amount of sympathy with that because you can get quite a lot for free, but you do need to invest in your tools, you need to invest in your information sources, and you need to invest in yourself. You can't be a competent, complete, all-round investor without reading some books, without having good quality periodicals i mean I, I don't see how anybody could be an investor without reading the financial times and the wall street journal and the economist i mean if they can do it well done to them i've got no idea how you how they could possibly do that
1: so i like how you emphasize the importance of back of the envelope checks for valuations over more complicated models i also prefer this method although more complex models are important too it seems like different investors do this math in different ways. Can you give an example of a business that you've analyzed using back-of-the-envelope math and what specific numbers that you would look at?
0: The problem with spreadsheets is that they look like the answer is right. And a friend of mine was working with a major international oil company and at board level, and they, the, the board couldn't understand how the analysts came up with their forecasts. And so he got three of the top, so the II top three analysts on the oil majors and asked them for their models of this company. And they then had somebody audit the models. And every single one had not one error, but multiple errors in the model. And uh, that's quite shocking. But I can't tell you how many times I've emailed an analyst at a bulge bracket firm and said, I don't understand how you get to this number and they've changed their forecast because their forecast their model's been wrong this isn't like oh once in a blue moon occasion this happens regularly and you got, and you can't really blame the sell side analysts because they've got like huge amount of work to do and you know this is this is a difficult process so what i would do is i would always have very simple models and then Whatever the model spat out at the end, I would ask myself, does that make sense? And we used to call it the back of the fag packet calculation. So, you know, the cigarette packet, you could, there's not much room for calculations. And just asking yourself, I've got this stock that Dan is growing at 25%. So that means 10% revenue, 12% revenue, 12% on the, on the margin. Is that... Realistic? Is that sensible? What was it done in the past? It's simply a case of comparing your own detailed knowledge of that specific stock with the likelihood of that sort of occurrence. So, Michael Mobusang, when he was at Credit Suisse, produced think, something called the base rate book, which was a sort of incidence of you know, how fast the companies grow, how fast do they improve their margins, and, and so on. Those sorts of simple checks are very, very important when you're doing forecasts. They're actually also quite important when you're looking back in history. I was talking to somebody a couple of weeks ago who'd bought Estee Lauder. And he said, and it's not a stock I know or have looked at, but he was saying I wouldn't have done it if I'd thought more carefully about they'd had very impressive growth in margins. And I should have asked myself, how sustainable was that growth? Because In fact, what they've effectively been doing is stealing from the future. So they, you know, these are his his words, his analysis. I'm not, I've not looked at it. But often you find, often you find that. And just asking yourself, does this make sense, is a hugely important question. And if you just ask those those questions, you avoid all the frauds because none of the frauds make sense.
1: So I liked your emphasis on doing sense checking for evaluating business, which you kind of just talked about now. And I think this is an area that many investors refuse to look at because it invalidates their ability to buy a business, especially in bull markets. The other problem that can happen in bull markets is comparing one overpriced business to an industry full of overpriced businesses. This can help justify a purchase, even though looking at historical average price to earnings valuations or whatever metric of your choice for the industry over the last 10 years might be 50% or cheaper than current valuations. So how do you best combat making these mistakes when markets are running hot and everyone is euphoric?
0: I can't tell you how to combat making investing mistakes because, you know, if I knew that, I would be rich, right? I mean, everybody makes investing mistakes. The best investors make mistakes because this is a very, very complicated endeavor. And even Warren Buffett, the best investor in the world, I mean, he's made mistakes. You know, he bought Tesco and um, it's just not possible not to make mistakes. I think where I get where I beat myself up is where I make the same mistake a second time or a third time. And then I get really annoyed myself. I think you should have known because remember that last time there was a similar sort of situation. But in overheated markets, people get excited. They get enthusiastic. So the most important thing you can do to protect yourself against that is to start off with a valuation framework. And so, you know, we teach that you should look at not only the valuation of the stock, but the valuation of the market. And there's a huge amount of garbage talked about, oh, it's time in the market, not timing the market. And I don't say that that's garbage, because it, obviously it's a truism. It is time in the market, not timing the market. But if you just keep buying, irrespective of price level, you might do well over the very long ter- term. So, if you're 25 years old and you do that for 40 years, you might be okay. But if you keep doing it when you're 65 and you're wanting to retire at 70, you'll lose your shirt. And you know all these all these truisms are, are I think, quite dangerous in a way because people quote what Buffett says out of context, and if Warren Buffett were giving advice to a 75-year-old, a 55-year-old, and a 35-year-old, he wouldn't give the same advice. And what people fail to understand is you've got to think about your personal circumstances. I've got, on my podcast, I interviewed a guy called Sebastian Lyon who runs Troy Asset Management in London. It's about a $10 billion firm, and he looks at the valuation of the stock market, and if it's very high, he holds more cash. And if it's very low, he owns more shares. That's what you should do. I mean, it's very difficult in you know, these recent times where markets have become incredibly enthusiastic. And older investors just kind of understand that they're going to miss the boat, not make as much money as they, their younger peers, but they'll lose less money later. I mean I was asked to look at a Dutch company Adyen in the payments industry. It was valued at 100 billion dollars and it had 1.3 billion dollars 1.3 billion euros pardon me of sales. And you know I said okay payments is quite a good industry and they seem to have quite a good position in it. What sales growth would they need to have for how long before I could you know think about that as an investment? And the answer was 15 years at 40%. Now, I don't quite know what Amazon's compound growth has been over the last 15 years, but that has been 40%. It's just like an almost unachievable sort of of level. And when you see that happening, you are going to ask yourself, well, hang on a second. If this stock is at that level, what about all the other stocks? Because if people are, are so enthusiastic about this, Maybe they're being overly enthusiastic about other things. I mean, people are, even in poor markets, people are always over-enthusiastic about something. But when you get very, very clear signs of froth, then you should just exercise a bit more caution. And that's the best discipline, I think, that I can recommend. I don't have any, there's there's no magic to investing. It's the same old thing every cycle. My friend Russell Napier, the famous financial historian, he started the Library of Mistakes. And the Library of Mistakes in Edinburgh, is, if any of, any of your listeners are in the UK or in Scotland, they, they definitely should go and visit the Library of Mistakes. It's a brilliant institution. It's got, I think, 4,000 books and lots of interesting memorabilia. And even just to walk around and look at the posters on the wall of past frauds and so on, and just keep your feet on the ground. You don't have to make the money tomorrow. You can make the money over the long haul. And I think, you know, a lot of mistakes are made because people have a desire to get rich quickly. I know the motto of my courses is, you know, I'll teach you how to get rich slowly.
1: I don't know how to get rich quickly. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors.
2: Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing.
1: This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com/slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement.
2: Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability, and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, and redefines sporting luxury. with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com.
1: All right, back to the show. So I think environmental, social, and governance is largely a buzzword used to generate interest in emerging and unproven business models. But you had a really interesting three-question framework I think is actually useful. One, does the company have a purpose? Two, will it improve people's lives? And three, will it improve customers' lives? I think this is a great set of questions to ask to find out if a business is a true win 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 for the good of the planet, the customers, and the business. But finding a business opportunities like these are quite rare, but they do exist. How do you incorporate these questions into your investing process, if at all?
0: I'm not an ESG investor, and I'm quite, you know, an ESG investor would be quite shocked looking at my portfolio today because I've got, energy and i've got mining and i've got dirty companies and i think those dirty companies are going to do well and i want to save the planet don't get me wrong right i'm passionate about about that but saving the planet and making money are two different things and i think we should be devoting more attention to climate change i think the esg has been a bandwagon you know the ESG made money because the tech stocks fitted ESG. So if you had an ESG fund, you're overweight tech, and so you did well. And then in 2022, tech fell and the ESG funds all fell, and everybody said, oh, well, maybe it's the end of ESG. And coupled with that, there's been this sort of backlash, particularly in the U.S. municipalities, where in Texas, they don't want you to own an ESG fund because then the ESG fund won't be investing in oil and that's not good for the local economy and there's all sorts of political things come into it. But I think that when I look at, the, when I look at ESG, G, governance, I mean, that is table stakes. If you buy a company with bad governance, guess what's going to happen? They're going to steal from you. So buy companies that, are, that have good governance. I used to invest with crooks One of the things, one of the chapters in the book was about investing with crooks. But, you know, you have to be on the same side of the table as the crook. So governance is table stakes. The S, I'm I'm quite dubious about the S. I mean, I do understand the principles and the human capital. And people are the most important part of a business. But it's pretty obvious. You know, you just need to look at the board and who's on the board. I mean, whether you know you need to have a certain number of executives that are female—that is a very interesting debate. And you know, I think that you can have a company which has got a lot of women in senior roles, and a company which has few women in senior roles, and they can both be good companies, and and not necessarily discriminating in either way. And I don't think I think it's very difficult to spend too much time worrying about S. And then the E, I want to save the planet, and I want to invest in companies that are, are conscious of their responsibilities for one simple reason. I think that you know the carbon price is going to go up a lot. And if you aren't are paying attention to the carbon price, well, you're probably going to end up with a, a lower quality investment because the carbon price will go up and you should be wary of your environmental obligations. But that doesn't mean to say I shouldn't buy Exxon or BP because we need oil. I mean, I, you know, I'd be very happy if we had more electric cars and that we were producing less pollution. And I think that's a very good thing. I don't happen to drive an electric car myself. I think the electric technology is perfectly fine. But of course, you can't displace everything overnight. So you know, realistically, we have to provide the exons of this world with capital because otherwise we won't have any oil and we won't be able we won't be able to go anywhere because we can't get enough lithium to make you know i mean the, the technological changes take time to work out i think esg has been an overused epithet i think it will disappear actually because there's such a backlash against it but I would be very careful about ignoring the principles entirely. And I thought the questions that I was asking are quite a good way of understanding. This isn't an ESG question. The best investors incorporate ESG into their fundamental analysis and have done since the beginning of of investing. Before ESG was a thing, people were practicing ESG because they were asking themselves, is this a sustainable business? And the actual sustainability of it and the pollution and the climate change and the environmental, all those things are part today of what is sustainability. And you have to really worry about the fact that, I don't know, when was Al Gore's film so popular, 2006? We're 17, 18 years on from when Al Gore pointed out what was gonna happen to the, to the weather. And we've done nothing about it. Why have we not spent billions, trillions of dollars on carbon capture and storage? It just it is beyond my comprehension. The government should have been forcing us to investigate. And and the UK government, I mean, they had a competition 15 years ago to design a you know a CCS scheme. Never been implemented. I mean, just pathetic.
1: So I really enjoyed reading about your history in the investing industry when you first started in one of your recent Substack articles. You discussed how you couldn't sleep because of a buy note that you published. You were fearful you'd be wrong and you wouldn't make a positive impression. You then discussed how you got over imposter syndrome by building skills to outperform your peers. Now, many listeners are not professional investors, but love the art of investing. So what are the biggest bang for your buck areas to build skills on when you are a newer investor?
0: I still have imposter syndrome. You know, I think it's very hard to get away from. And, you know, that was early in my career. And it was a, a new sector, a new company, very important company, big call. And, you know, if it had gone wrong, you know, my career was at risk. And so the night before, you, you worry, don't you? you? You can't sleep. But there's all sorts of ways of gaining skills. If you're a private investor today, you don't even need to spend a lot of money. But you should. Because taking things for free creates two risks. One is the risk that it's rubbish because there's a, well, you laugh, but there's a lot of really, really good stuff on the internet, whether it's on Substack or on YouTube. There's some great quality content. So I've got some fantastic uh, videos on YouTube. But if you have not heard of me and you just arrive at my YouTube channel, you get no idea whether I know what I'm talking about or not. So it's very difficult to know where to go. It's the, the the trick with the the free stuff is knowing where to go. So that's very difficult to resolve. And there's quite a lot of good free stuff on on Substack. I mean, I've got I save my best stuff for my paying subscribers, but I put out quite a lot of free stuff that's quite useful. And lots of other people do the same, but finding the, you know, finding the right ones is quite tricky and you've got to worry about what the value of your time is. Because the free, I think, is a false economy because you spend so much time on garbage that you shouldn't be wasting time on that you spend 10 times the amount of time, so you get 10% of, your, of that time that you, you've put out. as it output? And that, you've got, your time's gonna be pretty cheap to make that worthwhile. I recommend reading books. I've got a list of books, I think there's 10 or 20 books on my website that i think are a must read for every investor i believe and look i'm very biased in this because i've got an online school but i believe that online education is a very very effective way of improving your your investing skills because if you do one of my courses You not only get the the videos from an experienced practitioner telling you, here's how I went about it and here's some tips, but you also get exercises to do. So you download a model, you can fill out that, that particular exercise and then you can look at the model answer. And in my school, I have a community so you can ask me questions. You know, if you don't understand something, you can get some proper help. And we've thought quite carefully about this. But sadly, there aren't too many of these types of opportunities. I mean, there are a few people. I, I came across somebody yesterday who, a German guy who has got an investing school. I mean, unfortunately it's in German, so you, you know, it limits the, the audience. But I'm told his stuff is, is quite good by a German investing friend of mine. And so I wouldn't discount using that as an approach and find some good sub stacks. Substack published the most popular finance substacks. So it's kind of like the top charts. And some of them are good, some of them not quite as good. But if you've got somebody that's got a big following on Substack, the chances are that they're that they're reasonable. So books, newsletters, be very careful about the newsletters though because there're a lot of charlatans in the newsletter world. I think Substack is probably a better, safer place than some of the other sources of newsletters. And online courses, I think, are a good way, and going to university is a good way of learning. I'm less keen on the CFA, I've been getting a lot of flack for criticizing the CFA. I think the CFA is, does a good job of teaching you about the theory of investing. Gives you three letters after your name, but only after an immense amount of effort and work. And I, I really don't know that that's worthwhile. And the problem with investing is the theory is all rubbish. The theory gives you like, I mean, completely the wrong answer. So I don't really understand why people are so keen on investment theory. I mean, in my courses, I teach you, you know, here's what the theory is and here's why it's rubbish. So I do it very quickly, you know, we do the because. You don't need the capital asset pricing model. The beta, complete not. I mean, I think it's garbage. It leads you to wrong answer as often as not. So why worry about it?
1: So, you recently attended the London Quality Growth Conference and you shared a very interesting photo of the drop off in quality businesses and an even more severe drop in quality plus growth. I'm interested in your opinion on the drop in quality business over the past five years. What factors do you think are driving this drop?
0: I'm trying to remember the chart that you're referring to. I mean, I think the, what we were trying to look at was the persistence of quality. It, it's quite a new conference, it was reasonably well attended. Now, but I was interested to go along just to see how people define quality. And I think 14 of the 17 speakers, something like that, I don't quote me on the, the exact numbers, Define quality as sustainable competitive advantage. And I said, well, what is, what is that? How do you find what? And the reason that Berkshire has been so successful, I mean, apart from the fact Buffett and Munger are obviously geniuses, or Warren and Munger was a genius. The reason is that See's Candies today is as successful as it was when they bought it 50 years ago. It's a lot bigger and it's still making exceptional returns. Now, even Warren Buffett today would have a much harder time identifying stocks that are going to be winners in 50 years time. You might say, Oh, okay. Apple's going to be a winner in 50 years time. But don't get me wrong. When he bought seized candies, it wasn't obvious that it was going to be seized candies. And you know, it was, but people were still going to be buying chocolate in 50 years time. Will we be using the iPhone in 50 years' time? I'm very, I'd be very surprised. I mean, it may be that we'll have an implant in our ear that is an Apple implant. I mean, I, who knows? And it may be that Apple will be in the forefront of creating that technology. It certainly has as good a chance as anyone, a better chance, because it you know got more resources to throw at it. There's no guarantee that it'll be successful, and there's no guarantee that it will even identify the right Resources, the right technology, and I, I think technology is so pervasive today. There's barely a business in, that you can look at in which technology isn't a critical component. Even seized candies, I bet you. Well, I don't. I mean, I've never, I've never eaten a seized candy. I, America is a wonderful country, and I love it. We go there on holiday, and my kids love it. But the chocolates terrible. It really is. I mean, chocolate doesn't hold a I mean, it's not nearly as good as chocolate in Europe. You're probably going to get all sorts. Don't invite that anti-American guy on. But anybody that knows chocolate, and I'm a great chocolate fan, knows that if you want chocolate, you go to Belgium, not to the United States. But even to these candies, I bet you you can. we'll have a website and you can order it online. And there's a technological aspect to every business today. And I think that makes the idea of a sustainable competitive advantage a much more ephemeral thing. It's much harder to get your hands around. And I'd love to hear Buffett being interviewed about that. I'd love to hear what he what his perception is. And as a consequence of that, I think the sustainability of competitive advantages are, is probably eroding, and that's kind of what the research that we looked at told you was that although companies that have high returns in capital, there tends to be persistent. The duration of the persistence from here, I would question. Obviously, looking back is easier. But the, the, the problem you've got is it's very easy today to look back and say Amazon's a great company or Google's a great company or whatever. But at the time, we didn't know how good Amazon was going to be or how good Google was going to be. Or Facebook, Meta, whatever they call themselves this, this week. I mean, Facebook came to the stock market in 2012, and I refused to invest in it because I just said, well, I don't know what it's going to be able to do on mobile. I don't know anybody that is you know, spending more time in Facebook. Kids don't want to go on it. I don't see what its moat is. And I didn't buy it when I bought it when it had the very controversial setback where the Cambridge Analytica affair, where the stock collapsed, then I understood that it could do mobile and that kids didn't like it, but older people did. And I I saw that my own business used it to advertise and that it was quite cheap and quite effective. And I thought, oh, actually, it's a better business than I thought. And I, I then was given... The opportunity to to buy it, but um, I wouldn't have done so otherwise. I just think that sustainable competitive advantage is easier said than analysed and delivered. And I've got great admiration for people that are, you know, that are excellent at the qualitative aspects of investing, understanding the sustainability of an, uh, an advantage I, is it. I'm a numbers guy and so I tend to look at things through uh, through a financial data lens and the sustainability of the advantage you can look back and see have the returns been very high in the past and if they have been you tend to pay a very high price unless you get like those temporary setbacks and understanding a business that's still developing a sustainable competitive advantage that will be there in five or ten years' time, I don't think is one of my particular strengths, and I don't know how you do that except from your own experience as a customer. So you can say, oh, well, I bought that because it's, it's that product is miles better than its competition. But then if you look at, so take an unquoted company as an example, Dyson, the UK technology manufacturer, makes vacuum cleaners and hair dryers and all the rest of it. You pay a high price for a Dyson product, will they be able to maintain that price differential in 10 years' time? Will they be able to keep the same technological lead? These are very difficult questions to answer, and I don't, ha- I, I don't have any real magic solution for that. I think you know, in owning quality businesses is obviously something we all aspire to, and personal experience I think is an amazing help in that. I did a competition for my Substack readers. I did a, like a mini course, which was like 10 bucks. And there were three things that you had to, to watch. And then you had to create examples from your own experience. It was about how do you find good stock ideas? I should do it again, because there'd probably be more interest in it. And I, I said, the winner got a free course. And the winner was a lady in, in the UK. And she had taken... Some brilliant examples from her personal experience. And she said, Oh, I tried to, you know, I tried to buy this product, and I found this one had did this and this one did that. And this one was by far the winner because it wasn't that much more expensive, but it was much better quality. And she really understood the product. And she really understood why the company could have higher margins than its peer group. And she explained why the valuation was competitive, because they would continue to make higher returns. And that's what I kind of look for. And she did it brilliantly.
1: Stephen, I appreciate you so much for joining me today. Before we say goodbye, where can the audience connect with you and learn more about your book and your course?
0: Well, the book is available, sadly, not all good bookstores, but it came out in November 2020 when all the bookstores were closed. But you can get the book on, on Amazon. The book's called The Smart Money Method by Stephen Clapham. You, the best place to see what I do is behind the balance If you On the top right of the homepage, there's a sign-up button, and you can go and you can sign up for the free sub-stack. I also have all the investing courses on there, so there's courses online and in-person. In-person courses I only do for institutional investors, but I charge quite a lot of money. But the online courses, are, are there's a whole range of, of different courses My favorite is the Analyst Academy, which is everything you need to become a serious investor. And there are some investing resources on there. So some of the videos that we've done about, you know, we did a series of videos on investing tips, a series of videos on accounting red flags. So, you know, those are things that, you know, I've tried to put into the public domain just to help investors. And you can find me on Twitter. I'm very not there very much these days because it doesn't seem to generate much engagement. And we've got a company page on LinkedIn, which I have a social media person who helps me, who puts out a, a, a lot of content on that that's worth following. And um, I just want to say thank you very much for having me on. I'm hoping that when I next watch your podcast, that I'm going to see my book up there in that poll position, top right corner. And um, thank you for your questions. I really, really enjoyed talking to you.
1: Thank you, Stephen. Okay, folks, that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed the show and I'll see you back here very soon.
2: Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about
1: Bitcoin and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets.